says, For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nations of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you. O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures, with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they taunted my people and made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people and the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beast. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She does. She accepts no corruption. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near her to God. Her officials within her are like roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Each morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. <coughs> Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, the just, the holy, the righteous judge. And Lord, if it was not for your son, we would not be able to come, but we come through his precious blood. And thank you for your word given to us. May it go forth and accomplish what you desire. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. In June 2016, Judge Aaron Persky in Santa Clara, California, passed a sentence 
which would soon grab national headlines. The accuser in the case had read a lengthy statement about the sentence, declaring that though the accuser was declared guilty, the sentence was too light, the punishment too soft, and all of this stemmed from a privileged and biased society and justice system. Their reading was posted online and soon went viral, and even a CNN host read the whole thing live on TV. Anger rose. Petitions were filed that this judge would be repealed. He should no longer sit as a justice. Online, people took both sides. Some saying this was injustice. Others saying no, what the judge did and the verdict were fair and right. The question remains, though, was justice really done? Or in 1995, Orenthal James, better known as O.J. Simpson, was declared not guilty for the murder of his former wife and her friend, though DNA and blood were found at the crime scene, his DNA and blood. Still, people, some people said he was innocent, others said he was guilty. People took sides, but the question remains, was justice really done? And you probably have never been part of a high-profile court case, but surely you've had a sibling or a co-worker who lied and the authority blamed you instead of them. Or your work went unnoticed while others received praise. Or you were slighted or oppressed, and no one seemed to notice or even care at all. Will justice really be done? And this morning, Zephaniah answers that question. He's going to answer in three ways. He's going to say that God, the just judge of all the nations, will judge. If you have a bulletin, you can find this on the outline on the back. First, we'll see in verses 4 through 15 that God will judge proud nations. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, God will judge shameless Judah. And then lastly, in verses 6 through 8, that God will judge stubborn rebellion. Now, this first section will make more sense as hopefully we have a map that we can put up on the screen. And on that map, we'll see that what he is doing is he is describing the nations all around them. You know, God had told them, as we saw last week, that Israel was going to be judged. And now he's going to walk to the nations, north, south, east, and west, so not in that order, until that they are going to be judged. Now, the people who are to hear this is not the surrounding nations, it's to be them. You know, God had sent prophets like Jonah to Nineveh, which we're going to read about, to warn them. But here the point is that they will see the judgment that happens to the other nations, and God's people would go, oh, God's going to do what he says. He's going to judge the nations. So first, in verses 4 through 7, we're going to see judgment to the west. Because he starts out, but he talks about cities of Philistia. He says Gaza, and then Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. And you can see those on the map, either screen here. Gaza, then Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron. He's just walking up the map. That would be like someone today saying, hey, he's going to start in San Antonio. And then in Austin, Waco, Dallas. And all of us who know the I-35 corridor would go, oh, he's just walking up the map. And he's saying those are going to be judged. All these people to the west, because Jerusalem sets just to the east of those. So the nation to the west is going to be judged. And he talks about, in verses 4 through 7, how quick it'll be, how sudden. It'll be so quick, he says, it'll be done by noon. It's not even going to take a full day's work for God to judge this nation. He calls them the Cherethites, another name for the Philistines. And he declares a woe on them. 
He's telling them that his word is going to come. It will happen. But you may have noticed in verse 7, there's a word of hope. Because it says at the beginning of 7, the seacoast, that's the land of Philistia over there on the coast, by the sea, they will become a remnant for the house of Judah. So though there's this language of judgment, though we saw in chapter 1, we're seeing here that God's going to judge them, He's promising that there will be a group that He will preserve and that God will give new life. Though judgment will be received, there is still a chance for grace. How are they going to respond to the offer of grace? Well, then He talks about the nations to the east. If you look at the map again, verses 8 through 11, he talks about Ammon, which is right here, and Moab. So if you're starting from Jerusalem, he first went west, now he's going east. And talking about those nations will be judged. Now, Ammon and Moab are not just anyone, they're their relatives. You may remember that Lot was the relative of Abraham. He went to Sodom and Gomorrah. And there, God promised destruction against those cities. And Lot and his wife and children escaped. Those wife was punished for looking back. And then his daughter said, you know what? We're going to die. We're not going to be able to have children. So they plotted and they got their father drunk and through him had sons. And they were even rather crass about it. They named him Moab, which literally means from father. Well, that's a wonderful name, isn't it, for you to have growing up? And ben Amin, which means son of my people. Hey, you know all life, where you came from. These are crass people. They're relatives. They're the cousins of the Israelites. And yet they've never been kind to them. When Israel came out from Egypt, Israel said, Hey, can we walk through your land? We'll even pay you for the water and everything we use. But instead of that, Moab, you may remember, hired Balaam to come curse them. Or later on, when Saul was just king, the nation of Ammon attacked a tribe of Judah and conquered them. And the tribe of Judah said, let us make a peace treaty with you. And they said, only if you will let, you'll let us gouge out your right eye so we can shame you. And then later, when David was king, David tried to send a peace negotiation to them, saying, hey, things have been good, let's continue. And what did Ammon do? They cut off the men's beards in half and cut off their clothes from the waist down and sent them home. These nations have always attacked them. And here... We read, and you can read in the other prophets, of how they taunted and boasted against the nations of Israel and Judah. Well, Israel was conquered, and Judah, they didn't go, oh, they didn't go, hey, God may judge us. They mocked them. Ha ha, look at what's happening to them. And yet, notice something very important in this. You know, Judah and we often wonder do those who oppress others, are they ever going to be punished? These crimes that were committed, that are being brought up, happened hundreds of years before. And God is reminding them, I have not forgotten. I am not going to let it slip by going unpunished. I will make all things just and right. You know, Zephaniah is showing them that God does keep a record of right and wrongs. And he will make sure that all are punished or rewarded accordingly. And so due to their sins against Judah, God will punish these nations. And to emphasize this, he says in verse 9, As I live, you may have had someone say to you, As I live, I'm going to get you back. Except you know what? Eventually we're not going to live. But God is going to live forever. And he says, As I live, you can be sure that I will exact this judgment. 
upon his very eternal existence, God says this will happen. Not just that, they will become, it says in verse 9, like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now that's rather interesting. It's saying they've come full circle because where did they come from? They came from fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's saying you didn't learn. You should have learned from them. You fled from sin, but you're being returned to the exact judgment because you will be just like them. And it even describes the area around them. They'll become like scrub brushes. Their land will be full of salt, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And as with Israel, as we saw last week, this isn't because God's cruel or losing it. Verse 10, it tells us, this shall be their lot in return for their pride. In their pride, they thought they were better. In our pride, we look down on others. We mock them. We think little of them. And God says, in their pride, they will be punished. Every mocker, every oppressor one day will have to stand for their mocking and oppression. Well, then it goes on in verse 11. It says something very fascinating. God will destroy the other gods and they will worship him, Yahweh, the true God, each in their own place. So these foreign nations are going to worship the true God. Except notice, this isn't going to happen in Jerusalem. They can worship in their own place. You know, when Jesus came, he declared something similar. John 4, 20-23, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when, ne- coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so today, we don't need to go to Jerusalem. We don't need to go to Mecca. You don't need to go to Cowboy Stadium. That's your worship. You can worship God wherever you are. Because we don't worship at a place. We worship through a person. We worship through Jesus Christ. As we know, every day, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The echoes of His praise will resound throughout the globe. Well, after looking to the west and then to the east, he now looks to the south. And he mentions in verse 12, the Cushites. Now, that could be the Egyptians, could be the Ethiopians. We don't really know. But either way, the point is still clear. On every direction, north, south, east, and west, the nations will be judged. In other words, there's no location that God did not create, oversee, and will one day judge. As the song goes, there ain't no mountain high enough. There ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough to keep him from getting to you. And then he looks to the north, verses 13 through 15, the nation of Assyria. And this is so far north, it's not even on our map. But it's way up. And he talks about the city of Nineveh, which was the capital and is now where the current city of Mosul is near the Tigris River. Now, Nineveh was the world's largest city at the time. It was basically a city in a city. It had an inner portion, which had a wall that was so wide, you could race three chariots across the top of it at the same time. The circumference of the inner wall was eight miles. It was 100 feet high. So I know that you'd want to race a chariot up there, but you could if you wanted to. 
And that was the inner wall, let alone the outer wall for the rest of the city. And yet, Zephaniah, from the small nation of Judah, because remember, Israel has already been conquered. Judah, Zephaniah, and this small nation is saying, the greatest nation in the world will be conquered. It would be like Guyana or Benin saying to us, the United States is going to be conquered. We'd be like, yeah, right. There's better chance that you, a country some of us probably don't even know existed, is going to be conquered than the United States. And yet, it happened. Because it's not the power or size of a country or a person that matters. It's the power of God that determines what will happen. And Nineveh's destruction is going to be so great, it says in verse 14, that though it's a city, it will be turned into nothing more than a ruin for flocks and animals. I know about you, but many of us have grown up in a city that's grown. I grew up in San Antonio, and I'll go there, and I'll go, Oh, I remember when I used to hit golf balls here. And, oh, I remember we used to hunt here. Oh, I remember this used to be nothing. You could, pff, There was miles of land, and now shopping centers, housing areas, all this stuff for mile upon mile. This is the exact opposite. The shepherds will say, yeah, we used to have to take our sheep miles farther in. Used to, this is where homes were. Used to, this is where the palace was. But yeah, this is where the sheep graze now. This is nothing. Complete devastation and destruction. And this all happens, why? Again, because of pride. Verse 15, this is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am. There's no one else. You know, they think they made themselves. They're the reason they're going to keep going. And they'll never cease. Except God is clear. He will accept no rivals. We must decrease. He must increase. And though Assyria thought that no one else existed or mattered besides her, she will soon be no more than a place for animals to graze upon. And historically, we know this happened in 612 B.C. Nineveh was destroyed. That's 26 years before Judah. It's a message to Judah. Judah, look, we prophesied this was going to happen. You didn't think it could happen, and it happened. So don't you think when God warns you that you'll have to give an account that you, a much smaller nation, should listen and heed his warning? And so this section is reminding us that God's word is true. That judgment will happen and justice will be achieved. You know, it may appear that the Assyrias, the Hitlers, the Stalins of the world will not be stopped. But they're a blip on God's radar of history. And like each man, they're appointed to die and then meet their judgment. You know, we should take this truth to heart that God will exact justice. Now, many people find this abhorrent. We want a God of love, but I hope to show actually a God of justice is our hope. It's our reality to live in a way that gives us encouragement to live in a way that honors God. You know, it's because as you believe this truth and meditate on it, that you'll be liberated to forgive others, to return evil with good, to seek to give people a blessing rather than seek revenge. Because think about it, if you really think, you know what, they're getting away with this. That's not fair, they're getting away. Well, God made us as moral beings that declare justice is served. 
So if we think they're getting away with it, then we need to make sure they're not. And we will want to get justice by ourselves. And yet if we realize God will one day make all things right, then that doesn't mean I become a doormat, but it means I can trust the things that I cannot change in His hands and go, maybe what I'm getting right now isn't fair, but God will one day reward me for returning evil with good, for giving them a blessing instead of cursing them. That's our hope, that God will one day make all things right so that you can trust that that injustice against you in His hands, in His hands in which the gavel of pure justice will fall. Thus we can live out verses like Romans 17, 12, 17 through 21 that say, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thus, rather than being enraged at what your sibling did and always gets away with, because I know those things happen, happened when I was a kid, or seething at how your efforts are never noticed while everyone else gets praised for what they do, or blowing up, how all your spouse wants to do is talk about your issues. What about their issues? You can go, the release valve of God's justice. And let the steam flow out because God knows. God sees and He rewards you for returning evil with good. And He will punish the one who is treating you evilly. You see, as we want to say, no, we don't want a God of justice, we want a God of love, we undercut any motivation on our part to be loving to others. Why would I ever be loving to you when you're evil to me if you're going to get away with it? That's not fair. But God, when we treated Him evilly, what did He do? He responded in love. And He said, justice will be done. And then that compels us, impels us to go forward and respond not with bitterness, resentment, anger, but mercy, compassion, long-suffering, and love. But Zephaniah is then turned, because he's not going to just lay judgment on the nations, north, south, east, and west. He then turns to address Judah in verses 1-5 through five of chapter 3. Now this section is really a masterful stroke. He's been detailing the sins of the foreign nations. And you can hear the Judahites going, that's right. Oh, you let them have it, God. Those Assyrians, oh, we know what they did to our cousins, Israel up north. Oh, they deserve to be judged. That's right. They're proudful. They're pride, God. You let them have it. And in the midst of their eagerness to agree with God, they deserve to be judged. God slowly shifts the tables and starts talking about them. And all of a sudden they realize, oh, He's talking about us too. You know, it's like the story of David and the, and the prophet Nathan. You know, Nathan knew that David had sinned by committing adultery and murder. But rather than going in and going, David, you've broken the seventh commandment. You should confess. He goes in, he tells a story. He says, hey, David, there is this rich man and this poor man. And the rich man, he had all these flocks, but the poor man, all he had, all he had was one little lamb. 
And he raised this lamb up and he cared for it. And it was like his own daughter. But then people came to town and in that society you should provide food. But the rich man, you know what he did? He didn't care about all his flocks. He went and took that one poor man's lamb and butchered that so they could eat. And David said, that man should be killed. That man should be condemned. And Nathan points out, I'm not talking about sheep. I'm talking about lives. I'm talking about wives. And Uriah, he was the poor man. He had one wife. He was a faithful soldier. And you took his life and his wife. And David's words of condemnation were only against him. And just like David, Judah judged themselves for their city is wicked and depraved. Now you may be wondering, as I did, well, how do we know he's actually talking about Jerusalem? Because if you look at verse 1, it never says Jerusalem. It never says. And though he doesn't mention it, he leads them far enough into the trap that once it's clear, they are caught. Because he will talk about their God is Yahweh. Yahweh is in the midst of her, verse 5. Well, no Judahite would have thought that was in Assyria. He talks about them having the Torah, the law. Well, only Judah has the Torah. So by verses 4 and 5, when they're, that's right, that depraved city, and they go, the Torah is in her. Oh, I think he's talking about us, about me. And so here we see his descriptions. First, he calls a woe on them in verse 1 because they are rebels, it says. They're defiled. They're oppressing. And then he goes through because they won't even listen. They won't even take correction. They only do what's right in their own eyes. They don't trust in the Lord. They don't draw near to Him. And this is the exact opposite of the relationship we should have with God. Proverbs 3, 5-7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Rather than trusting in the Lord, though, she will listen to no one but herself. I'm personally always amazed when people go, the Bible is so outdated. It's so irrelevant. Could that not just describe perfectly our society today? They won't listen to the Lord. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. We're told, follow your own heart. Everyone, you do what's right for you. You be you. That's what we're reading from 2,600 years ago. The same sins then exist still today. You know, do we have to be burned on the same stove they were? Can't we learn from their mistakes? Well, the ramifications from turning for God are never just personal. They always bleed out into others, and we see that in verses 3 and 4. Because four ways their city has become corrupt with four groups. First, the city leaders are roaring lions. You know, in the ideal government, the leaders protect the people. Here, the leaders are feeding on the people they are charged to protect. Second in verse 3, the judges are devouring evening wolves who leave nothing. Well, at least if the government leaders fail, we'll have judges who will hold them accountable. Nope. These people are such voracious wolves, so unmerciful, they don't even leave a scrap until morning. Well, okay, but at least we'll have prophets who are telling God's word that this is wrong. Well, no, verse 4, the prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Rather than proclaiming God's word, the prophets proclaim what the people want to hear. They proclaim their own words. Okay, okay, that's bad, but at least the priests 
will allow us to know what's holy and we'll be able to receive forgiveness. We'll know. The end of verse 4. The priest profane the holy and do violence to the law. You know, the priest's role was to show them how to be pure and holy, how to keep the law. Yet in this bizarro sinful world, the very ones who are to lead to purity are the ones who are charged with the impurity. The very ones who should be teaching God's law and how to obey it are the very ones breaking it. And each of these four positions, the government leaders, the judges, the prophets, the priests, in their sin, they completely distort the good position they were given and they use it for evil purposes. And again, it would not take long for us to reflect on how each one of those is true today of government leaders, of judges, of pastors who only do what's right in their own eyes. But then the Lord contrasted between him and them because in verse 5 it says, He is righteous. You know, morning by morning it talks about, as sure as the sun rises, God will be just. In contrast, Judah doesn't even know how to be shamed anymore. They laugh at what's vile. They mock what's holy. What they should be ashamed to even know of, they delight in doing. And this is not just any people. It's God's own possession. These are the ones who are to be a city set on a hill, a light shining to the nations. However, they've traded their glorious calling for their self-centered sin. Have you ever noticed that God's word of judgment doesn't begin with others, but with His own? Last week, as we opened by looking at chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 2, we saw that judgment first was declared against Israel. And here again, He talks about the other nations, but He quickly brings it back to them. As 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Throughout the Bible, we see God is going to be just for all, but there are different levels of accountability. Jesus says in Luke 12, 48, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be acquired. James 3, 1 says, Not many of you shall become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And to those people, when Jesus was on the earth, who rejected his message, those Israelites, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And this ties into us. Because we have been given much. We're God's people. We have more copies of God's word in our homes than some whole churches have. We have access to quality teaching. And we can read the Bible on our phone. And when God comes to judge, He's not going to start pointing the finger at all the horrible people in the world like a lot of Christians like to do. He's going to begin first with us. With the people that are supposed to be representing Him. And sadly, as Christians, we're often so concerned about all the sin in the culture, which is there and which we should be concerned about, that we don't stop to go, but what about the sin that's in here? Or even worse, that's in here. Judgment will begin with me, with you, if you're part of God's people. We can bemoan where our culture has gone, and there are days we should bemoan that. It has gone very far where it should go. But 
on every single moral indicator, the church is doing the exact same things. The church is giving messages that affirm those things. The judgment begins with the house of God. And yet, the sad reality is that we stubbornly love our sin more than we love God. And that's the last section, verses 6 through 8 in chapter 3. Because after denouncing Jerusalem, God turns again to tell them what He's done to the nations. Look, He defeated them. He left them in ruins. They're battlements. They couldn't do anything to stop the attackers. They were no help in stopping the enemy. They're now completely ghost towns. And Judah could look. They could look to the north at what happened to Israel. And they could look at the other nations. They could look in a few years at what happened to Nineveh. And surely, God says in verse 7, well, surely this will cause them to come back. You know, of course, you'll understand that now you should fear me and turn from sin. Right? You'll see, you'll see now, as these other people have judgment poured, you'll see the folly of sin and you'll turn and follow me. Right? No. They were eager, it says, to commit corrupt deeds. They just didn't do it. They loved it. So verse 8 tells us that God declares that He will come and judge the nations. There's a little bit of a sad irony in verse 8. For God tells them to wait on Him. You know, Normally the concept of waiting for God is for Him to do you good. Isaiah 40, 31 says, Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Ah, oh, we're waiting for the Lord. That's our hope. But here, the wait is very much going to be like Matthew 7, where they're waiting, and then God says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. All they're waiting for is their own judgment, that he says he will pour out on all the earth. In the fire of his jealousy, they shall be consumed. Now, I know many are subconsciously, or maybe right now, very consciously going, okay, come on, this isn't really going to happen, though. I mean, we're basically good people. And when I was in college, I worked for a ministry, and from time to time, we'd go out and we'd pass out surveys, and the survey asked the people, can you name the Ten Commandments? And they would say how many they could name, and then we'd tell them to them. And then we'd say, okay, look at the list. How many do you think you've broken? And they'd give us some number. And then we'd always ask them after that, well, how many do you think you could break and still get into heaven? And invariably, to a person, they always said one or two more than they had just said they had done. So if they said they'd broken three of the commandments, they almost always said, well, you could break five and get into heaven. If they'd said they'd broken seven, they always said, well, you could break eight or nine and get into heaven. Every person painted the standard. So, hey, I'm still good. I'm okay. I'm not that bad. You know, there are some standards that you have to be 100% or you won't make it. You know, are you fine with a bank that gives you back 99% of your money? Or if your boss only stole 10% of the company's secrets, hey, he kept 90%, that's an A, is that okay? We'll keep him. Or would you let your kids be watched by someone who's only been convicted of child abuse only once? You know, out of all the minutes of the world that they've lived, and they only committed abuse for a few minutes. So yeah, I mean, it's one little thing. No. We want someone who's going to be perfect with our children. Some things demand perfection. And before a holy, infinite God, the standard is perfection. 100% perfection. 
pure. And yet we're sinful. We all know we're not perfect. And God says because of that we deserve His just judgment. God will judge the nations means this is not merely a warning for people 2,600 years ago. This is a warning to us today because we are part of a nation. This warning is to us. The God of all the earth will do right. You know, times when we're dealing with others, sometimes we wish, oh, I wish they'd get punished right now. But yet, we should be grateful that God does not punish right now because have you ever noticed when people are wronged, they want immediate justice, but when they wrong others, oh, you don't understand my intentions, or, oh, oh, come on, they want mercy. If we want immediate justice, then we need that for us too. And yet God tells us He's slow to judgment. He's patient. He's forbearing because He wants, He desires for people to come. He would rather show mercy than judgment. And He desired it so much that He poured that judgment out on His own Son that you might know His mercy and not His judgment. So why don't we admit, rather than blaming others for why we blew up, rather than blaming our parents for the way we live today, rather than blaming our day, rather than blaming our circumstances, why don't we just admit, I am messed up. I'm what the Bible calls a sinner. And I need mercy and forgiveness and grace. And that's my only hope. And God is offering that here. Admit that we're these people. We're the proud people. We're the stubbornly rebellious people. Because see, that's not all the news. Because the wonderful news is that on the cross, God poured out judgment on His Son. You know, Jesus took the judgment for the sins of all those who would ever believe in Him. Thus, every action will be judged. Either it will be judged on the Son of God in your place, or it will be judged and punished on you. You can be hidden from God's punishment if you are in Christ. And we have this wonderful news that, like it says in verse 11 of chapter 2, we want to spread to the nations. That's why we support missions. That's why we give our money. That's why we spend Wednesday nights praying that God would let people hear the good news, and when they hear it, they would respond. That's why we send ambassadors daily to Shepherd Air Force Base, in MSU, in the neighborhoods, because we're to go out and tell the good news of Christ. And so, there's this good news. Will you hear the warning? I'll end by recounting what we read earlier. You may remember Keith read it, the story of the parable of the owner of the vineyard. And he had tenants, and he kept sending people, will you send back what's mine? And yet they kept every person who came, no. And they kept punishing him worse and worse. And finally the owner of the vineyard said, you know what? I'll send my son. They'll listen to my son. And he sent his son. And they killed him. And the religious leaders, it said, knew that he was talking about them. And God has sent warning after warning. He's shown the nations will be judged. He's shown Israel he'll judge them. He's shown that he'll even judge his own son. Will you turn? Not hang on to your stubborn rebellion, but instead receive the open, gracious arms of our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we are 
more stubborn than we'd like to admit. We love our sin. And Lord, would you help us to loosen our grip on it and instead open our arms to receive you. Lord, we thank you for your mercy that was shown to us in Christ. May he be honored in and through us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.